0: Welcome, everybody. It's Charlie Swenson. This is the podcast. To hell is back, and I am back. I haven't done these for a while, a few weeks at least. And um, it is uh, June 18th. It's six o'clock in the evening, Massachusetts time. Um, and I uh, I want to thank uh, NEA BPD uh for supporting these podcasts. I started out with along with them. Um, and that continues. I'm still a partner with them. And Mark Pierce, who is the guy who uh, sets us up technologically and is a wise counselor to me about some things that come up about the podcast. So thank you, to people who are supporting and helping out. Um, you know, why have I been away uh, for a few weeks? Um, I'm glad it's not that... Uh, I, I just wondered, if am I cognitively declining and I just can't do it anymore? And I've figured out that's actually not the case, so I'm really happy about that. Um, but it's, um, it's a combination of factors, and maybe some of them have affected you. Uh, first of all, it's the... Um, COVID-19 pandemic and the various factors related to that, I find that working in my house where I am now, uh, actually I usually do the podcast here anyway, but usually I go to my office for work, but now I'm working almost entirely in my house for these months and I just go back and forth between personal space and workspace and now personal space has become workspace and workspace has become personal space and snacks are available all the time in the kitchen And um, so that's really easy and quite a distraction. And my two dogs who I love are always nearby, and my wife is always around, and sometimes she needs technological help on her Zoom account. And uh, of all people, she has to turn to me because I'm just a step ahead of her. And then I see my kids once in a while who come by. So um, it's just, but I find it's really hard to do this kind of work, preparing for a podcast, which requires for me doing some deep thinking if i'm repeatedly interrupting myself or being interrupted it's just a different kind of work and i start thinking oh this is what retirement must be you know you are just at oh, home gee i think what i'll do today is go get the milk and then i'm going to go uh visit somebody but actually i spend two hours i mean i don't know it just goes like that and i kind of lose my agenda so that's one thing that's happened is and and one of the things i am going to be talking about today as you'll hear is the wave of the pandemic and the effect on our lives. Um, So that's one thing. And I think another thing is the current dialogue that has gotten underway in the country and in all kinds of microcosms about um, racism, uh, police brutality, uh, and associated issues of inequality and on the edges all the time of sexism and Uh, homophobia, and all kinds of isms. Um, I've had trouble finding my voice in that. Uh, And I think that I haven't wanted to jump into that in a big public way of talking because I thought I'm just going to be an idiot. Uh, I'm going to start talking and, and I have a very narrow life frame based on just my own history, even though it's been somewhat interesting here and there. But I just thought, I'm not the person to be speaking about those things. I don't have expertise in those things. I don't have the lived experience of people who have suffered the victimization of those situations. And so who am I to talk? And And of course, anyone can talk. And I have talked with people. But I think that also played an interesting role in just not jumping into a dialogue right now of such hot topics, and yet not wanting to talk about not hot topics. (laughs) So it's just a number of things. Um, And the DBT community itself, uh, as I followed on, the DBT has a listserv and where people are always talking to each other. Um, And uh, the dialogue has been very complicated. Um, It's gotten a little more settled now, but around, around racism in particular and associated topics, it just people got really heightened vulnerability, heightened sensitivity, heightened, uh, fear of criticism, certain amount of criticism. And it was just became kind of a, a fractious environment for a while. A couple of people bailed out of it and, and, uh, I just won't try to characterize it any further, but I think a number of factors I've just sort of been doing my thing. I've been seeing my clients, uh, on Zoom. I've been doing trainings on Zoom. I've done, since I was last on a podcast, I did a training on DBT skills and how to uh, bring them into individual therapy sessions with a, a, a webinar for a couple of days. And then I did four days in Sweden uh, that I was going to do live, but I did on live streaming. And so I've, I've been busy with these other things and other things around my house too. So now I'm back, I'm back in the saddle. And I'd say what has allowed me to get back in the saddle is some of the things I'm gonna talk about today is trying to be most, more skillful at navigating a very complicated environment that I find myself in and maybe we're, we're all in in different ways. So, um, and, and what is a better saddle to get back into a podcast in dbt with than the behavioral chain so i'm this is going to start the behavioral chain it's going to end up somewhere else um so you know as you know or maybe you don't depends who's listening in dbt at the center of the treatment for much of the treatment is the use of a chronological chain of events the behavioral chain uh going from uh Where everything's began on a given day, to a problematic behavior somewhere down the chain, down the chronological chain of events. There's a problem behavior, an attempt at suicide, a self-harm behavior, um, engaging in substance use, uh, a violent behavior, or something else happens somewhere down the chain, and then there's some consequences to that. And the chain is used over and over and over again as the template, as the organizer of information in a chronological way it helps you to pinpoint places along the chain where things could have gone differently. Okay, when we visualize the chain, we visualize it usually, at least in, you know, other than maybe some uh, a Hebrew population and maybe some others, uh, from left to right. Uh, Some people might think right to left, but I certainly am among the tradition of thinking left to right. And so over to the left, we usually think that the things at the beginning of the chain are what are called the vulnerability factors. And I think in the world of DBT, to some degree, we pay short shrift to the vulnerability factors, even though they play a huge role. And I'm going to focus on them for a little while. Um, And then in the context of the vulnerability factors, a person is made vulnerable to um, whatever is some event that's gonna come next, which we'll end up calling the prompting event or the trigger or triggering event or something like that. All means the same thing, which is something that was triggered, which set off a chain of behavioral events, emotional events, thought events, events in the environment that eventuated eventually in the problem behavior which eventuated in some consequences. So it's as simple as that and as complicated as that can be. Um, Now, let's look at the vulnerability factors because what I wanna get to is the vulnerability factors that currently exist in our environment so that every chain we have, every chain I have in my own life right now, every chain that people have that I'm treating in my practice and in DBT every chain is influenced by vulnerability factors and we have some major contextual ones going on right now. So when I talk about vulnerability factors and you may or may not have learned it this way, if you learned DBT, but I tend to think of them as um, uh, made up of three categories. Uh, First category is the individual's biology. So, you know, in recent times, I've worked with people whose chain happened under the influence of uh, a biology that came from PTSD, a biology that came from bipolar disorder, a biology that came from being a shy and fearful person throughout one's life, uh, a biology that came from somebody being an alcoholic for many years. In other words, you begin the chain with certain standing situations biologically, and that colors the chain from the beginning. It not only renders you vulnerable to the prompting event, whatever that's going to be, but it also continues to exert its influence throughout the chain. I want the DBT people who are listening to hear that because there's something about the way DBT discusses the vulnerability factors that's a little artificial, it makes it seem like the vulnerability factors are operative at the left end of the chain. It turns out they're operative everywhere throughout the chain, throughout the prompting event, all of the links in the chain, the problem behavior is influenced by the vulnerability factors, and so are the consequences. And so is the presence or absence of resources and problem solving possibilities. The vulnerability factors are actually, shouldn't be diagrammed just as sitting at the left end of the chain. They pervade the chain from left to right. And so one of them is one's biology and all those things. What state of sleep somebody has recently had, maybe insomnia makes the difference. Uh, What nutritional status someone has? How starved are they? How stuffed are they? How sluggish are they? Uh, What kind of exercise has somebody been getting? What kind of physical illness does somebody have? What kind of medications is someone on? What are the side effects of those medications? All of these things are biological. I mean, has somebody been practicing mindfulness every day? That changes one's biological status going into any chain. So there's all these factors that are biological, that are part of the stew, the three-part stew that I consider to be the Um, vulnerability factors. The second part is the individual's history. So in recent times, um, I've treated people, one of whom was an only child, who grew up expecting to take care of the parents throughout life. And that affects every chain and and becomes a special mm, fertile soil for certain kinds of triggers, uh, prompting events. Not too long ago I've treated somebody who was bullied throughout early childhood in school uh, and also had uh, some alcoholic uh, family members at home and some uh, negative events happened. And this is somebody who, among other things in their chain, pretty routinely experiences themselves as doing something wrong. And being anxious about doing things wrong. And these may seem distantly connected at first, but the more we work together, the more like, oh, We're talking about something that started at the beginning and it's continuing to go on. So the vulnerability factors, which come from our histories, um, play a role in in the chain. Um, Has this person suffered from a overdose of traumatic losses, uh, of physical traumas, of verbal traumas, of sexual traumas? Uh, Has the person suffered from a chronically invalidating environment? That colors every chain. Has life left this person sensitized to separation and uh, loss and to criticism, to mistakes, to rejection? These are all things where the pattern is set in the earlier environment, and then when you come into a given chain, it's there. It's part of the uh, working model. A man I once saw decades ago, decades ago, in my pre-DBT life, um, was somebody who we would be talking and every once in a while, while we're talking, his arm would rise up, just like this, if you're watching. If you aren't watching, I'm just raising my left arm up in front of my face. And so his, his arm would go up while he's talking. And I would just, okay, it didn't interfere us from having a conversation. So we would just talk. And then at a certain point, I started saying, are you aware that your arm goes up while we're talking? And he says, not really. And then he started to notice that it would. But it wouldn't. It would Three sessions would go by, it wouldn't happen, and then it would happen while he was talking. And it would go up, and then it would go down. And then we started talking about it, and, you know, this little thing that would happen, it seemed like a little thing because it didn't interfere with our relationship, really. It was just an odd occurrence, physically. It turns out that when he was a child, once we started focusing on that, um, he used to be hit in the face by his father. And... Then we started to realize that some of the times his arm went up was when I was saying something that somehow triggered a recognition of, uh-oh, uh-oh. It's sort of like, 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 my, like I, I better put my arm up and protect my face. And then that led to some other discoveries. But, you know, even something like that, of course, if you look at that as a chain that you discover in a session, there's a vulnerability factor there, which is the history of the person is there. Uh, obviously, psychodynamic psychotherapists spend a lot of time on this aspect of the um, vulnerability factors. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've become aware uh, well, let me just move on. The third category of, con- of, of um, vulnerability factors and then the one I'm going to spend the rest of the time on is context is that the context in which you are, and the history of the context in which you've been, but let's say the context you're in now at the beginning of a chain, um, is another potential vulnerability factor. Some contexts render everybody more vulnerable. Like I would argue that right now, the context that arises from this pandemic situation and all of the lockdowns and restrictions and the confusion about it, is, is a, uh, and presents itself to different people, but probably most people as a vulnerability factor, making people more anxious or more uncertain or more critical or sensitive, uh, more irritable, um, more doubtful, more pessimistic, whatever one's problems were before. Now that you've got this additional contextual variable, um, you've got a, a certain kind of vulnerability that feeds into every chain that's going on right now. Um, I was thinking of others, things like uh, everyone is more vulnerable if you're in a car driven by an intoxicated person and you know they're intoxicated and you're scared. Um, Just an obvious thing. I'm just saying that some situations make everybody more vulnerable. Others are very selective about who's more vulnerable. Um, Everyone is more vulnerable in a family situation in which there's unpredictable violence and drinking. Everyone is more vulnerable if they are in poverty and deprived of, uh, of adequate food, adequate shelter, uh, adequate resources, adequate education. These are vulnerability factors for nearly anybody who's in those situations. Um, and many people, not everybody, um, is vulnerable uh, when they're in a situation of isolation, which with the pandemic, of course, so many people are so isolated right now. And for many of them, it is the biggest vulnerability factor. And yet, let me just say this then, because the next point I wanted to make, these, these different categories don't operate independently. I think it would be obvious if you've thought of that, and probably many of you have, is that um, your history can become your biology. And your biology feeds into your history. Um, and the context can uh, play a role in your biology changing your biology over time and changes your history and your history changes the context. So all of these things are, it's, it's like a stew um, that of interdependent factors. Um, Okay. You know, I was just musing about today when I heard that the Supreme court made a decision that the DACA recipients in this country, the people who are the DACA, the kids that came here from other countries, um, I think a, a surprising outcome was that uh, the decision that it, it would be uh, against the law now to uh, be trying, uh, or uh, the law as it exists now, to be kicking those kids out. And I was thinking, how many people's chains just changed, if you think of it that way? The vulnerability factors of all of those recipients and everybody who's close to them So there's hundreds of thousands of them. So maybe millions of people just had their vulnerability factors changed uh, in a few minutes with that announcement today. And and earlier this week, the announcement about um, the uh, banning discrimination in the workplace for people with LGBTQ populations was absolutely overnight changed the vulnerability factors. And a lot of what we're trying to do in political situations and social activism is to change vulnerability factors. This, is, this was what allowed me to put my DBT head back together in the middle of all of this craziness, is that I realized that DBT is not a model for, develop, for, for addressing politics. And it's not a model for addressing racism per se. Though it has a lot in it that can be helpful and it's not a model for social change it never was intended to be that though one could adapt it that way what's it a model for it's a model for helping individuals cope with emotion dysregulation in the face of stressful circumstances and that leads on to problematic behaviors that is it that's it in a nutshell and so where does the whole discussion of racism of police brutality of the pandemic and other factors like that. Where do they fit in? What does DBT have to do with these things? And I realized this is where I sort of got clearer. These are vulnerability factors. These contribute to vulnerability factors that affect every chain in America. And so they're very important, but it's important not to get out ahead of ourselves and think that DBT is the correct approach for things that actually have been worked on by people who are sociologists and historians and politicians and activists and change agents who have their own models and their own theories. So that I just sort of bringing, this is where to me DBT fits with these things is that these are vulnerability factors and they change huge things. Um, So, you know, you realize with the battles going on about the police culture in America, that changes that are made in the next few weeks and months based on what has happened uh, could change may or may not be hopeful or not hopeful could change uh, things dramatically in terms of the vulnerability factors for policemen for, for police officers, uh, as well as for people who are, uh, you know, come under the mm, work of the police during a given shift. Uh, and the whole society that depends on the police, it's really a radical reshifting is going on that could change a lot of the vul- vulnerability factors. So this now brings me to today's podcast topic. Like this was a 22-minute up. <laughs> and I guess that means it's going to be a 38-minute pitch. Um, and it's going to go on next week because I know I'm not going to be able to cover what I'd like to get to. Because what I'd like to get to is that... Um, I really, I want to lay out what I think is the, try to dissect out, for me, the vulner, from the vulnerability factor point of view, what it is that's going into everybody's chains or the context in different ways, but what are these factors, and then how do we come to grips with those, because right now, we have an excess, we have an abundance of vulnerability factors, Uh, not to mention the ones that were there already and that we face every day in our lives, but it's sort of like a lot of things are going on. Um, So I want to sort those out a little bit and then talk about um, the extremely valuable use of mindfulness to uh, wake up to what's going on and uh, appreciate what's going on and expand awareness of what's going on and have practices that help us cope with what's going on and keep our heads about us or regain our heads about us, which is what I've been trying to do lately. Um, And then a a second skill, which is gonna be, once we wake up and we see what's really going on, we need radical acceptance uh, because then we're awake. If, If we're not, if we don't really see what's going on, we swim all over the place, we're quite confusing. But if we actually just settle down, cope with these factors, see what's happening in the environment, and in our lives, and take stock of it without getting overly exercised about it, without overly judging it, without overly um, being impulsive about it, just appreciating it and seeing it and take some time to sort it out, then maybe the first step of that would involve what D and DBT would consider radical acceptance. And, and I find that helpful in getting further settled. And those things have to happen before, I think, being particularly effective if you do decide i want to do something about these things if you want to do something about these things but you don't wake up to reality or you don't have your head about you or you lose control of your mind every time you get into it because you're so mad about it or you're so hurt about it or you're so exercised about it that you really turn out to be doing a lot of flailing and not changing as much as maybe you'd like to do so Waking up with uh, mindfulness and then using radical acceptance to really appreciate and accept and acknowledge, oh, this is what's going on. I want to talk about that. The third thing I want to talk about, which I'm sure I won't get to today, but would be validation, looking for the validity in what different people are experiencing so that when we do have our clients come in, or if we want to address validation to ourselves and self-validate, that we sort of have a leg up on What it would be to validate, um, depending where somebody is in this sort of um, racial inequalities, uh, societal inequalities, um, um, police excessive force, um, the pandemic itself, um, reactions to Donald Trump, which is a big factor itself. So, So let me go over what I think, to me. And please, I'm just, I'm just, no, I'm going to be leaving really important things out here that could make certain people feel um, this wasn't fair, that I've left some very important factors out. I know I've left some of them out. I can't talk about everything, but I'm going to do the best I can to talk about some ones that have had major impacts on me or people that I've known or been close to. So I'm going to say that we are are sort of, um, I'm going to put it this way that we are uh, struggling, trying to stay afloat amidst five waves of um, contextual vulnerability factors. Uh, in our, and by that, I mean in our national context. And obviously, as soon as I say that, every wave affects every person differently, depending who they are in society, where they are, what on all the other factors of who they are and their history and their biology. So really I'm talking about pretty broad strokes here. So the first one, what's the first wave I'm talking about? This is a wave that's been in existence uh, forever. Um, but it, I think it affects so many people, um, inequality. And I think it affects more people now because in the last 40 years, by all statistical measures, as well as by just anecdotal measures that I could give you myself just from comparing my childhood to my current life, or what I faced as a child to what my children face now. Um, The degree of inequality has grown uh, demonstrably extreme uh, compared to what it was in the 1950s and 60s, for instance. In the last 40 years, uh, like a march, every three years, every five years, every 10 years, there's just been larger and larger gaps between the wealthiest and the poorest. And, uh, and just to the point where it's obscene, uh, it's absurd, it's uh, terrible, it's uh, immoral, uh, strikes me as, is that the the gap is terrible. There are people who have a hundred billion dollars and there's people who can't eat and in the same ballpark here. So, that, 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 that and there are a million examples of that so obviously this first wave of, of, of inequality has been a stable but fluctuating factor throughout our history and it's gotten really bad sometimes it's gotten better at other times and I certainly wouldn't claim to be the person who thinks that it could be completely eliminated. Um, there probably would always be some inequality but uh, but there are um, but it's a huge problem right now right so there's that. Um, And so there's a huge division between the haves and the have-nots. And the have-less and the have-nots and the have-nothings. And the have everything and have obscene amounts. So there's this real gap going on here, which is a vulnerability factor for working with lots of people, certainly in working in the public sector like I do, encounter every week people who really are Uh, you know, the victims of that have versus have not dichotomy, but I also work with people who are at the extreme end of the have dichotomy sometimes, and they, some of them aren't doing so good given that circumstance. So there is this vulnerability, and this wave is a shaper of individual change throughout the country. Second wave, I would say, is the wave of polarization in our dialogues is every, these are nothing new under the sun here that I'm talking about. And I'm not an expert in these things. So please don't think of, of me as just, uh, you know, I'm, I'm an amateur when it comes to all these things, but I'm an observer and I do read and I think about these things and I, and more and more actually. And, and I think the level of polarization has also escalated along with the waves of inequality escalating so that between the technologies of uh, cable news and uh, social media, uh, and uh, there's been just increasing levels of polarization to the point where it's almost at an absurd level here. Also, just like the inequalities at an absurd level, it's getting to the point where we're living in basically different uh, rooms, uh, information-wise, uh, news-wise, uh, philosophy-wise. It's like, whoa, um, it is so different. And what is it that we're so polarized about? Obviously, a million different things every day in the news. There'll be, I mean, even even in these last two Supreme Court decisions, the polarization within the Supreme Court, which is fine that it's there because it's, you know, the world is filled with opposites and polarization. We assume as dialecticians, dialectical philosophers within the DBT world that actually that's a characteristic of reality is that there's always polar opposites going on. But how they're handled and whether they're held together and whether they're validated on both sides is a big difference in different situations. So that, um, but it seems to me when I thought about it for this podcast, what is it that people are so polarized about? Um, one of those central things that affects the other waves I'm talking about is there are those who are. Uh, seem to be the champions of helping out the have-nots. And then there are the champions of the haves, whether they would call themselves that or not. Um, There are people who push hard and fight hard and argue hard for decisions that essentially increase the level of inequality and that increase the uh, burdens on the backs of people for whom there is less and less of a safety net. And it seems again almost unconscionable under the current divisions, the current levels of inequality, that you would have people arguing in favor of there being less of a safety net, less health care, uh, uh, less social supports, uh, less child care. It's just absurd. And, and and if you look at that at the same time, and you think, well, of course, if we're going to use radical acceptance eventually with these, we've got to ask ourselves you know, what is the cause of this? And what's the history of this? And it, from a certain perspective, it has to make sense. And that's what historians do. Um, But I think that that's where the polarization often is. And it's very hard for some people to occupy the synthesis, to find a synthesis between the champions of the haves and the champions of the have-nots. Because if you act as if you're trying to find a synthesis or a middle path between these. I think you can get slammed by both sides. It's so polarized now that it's very hard to even carve out a middle path without seeming like you have just violated one or both sides. So we're in a, I think, a very vulnerable place with respect to polarization and it affects it affects things in my own um, nuclear, my, my family of origin I have people that are on different sides of this divide in arguments and it's really painful and it really uh, determines a lot of uh, misery for people. Um, next wave, the third wave, uh, racism. And that, that would include or would morph also into anti-immigrant, uh, especially immigrants of color. Um, but the, the racist history from the beginning, from 400 years ago in our country uh, has just, it's modified, it's changed, it's gotten better in many ways, and it's never stopped. And it has led to suffering that um, only a a few people are now just starting to see, I think, um, the degree to which life is so different if you are a person of color. Um, And it's been there, the prejudice toward and persecution of of uh, people of color has been there since uh, since European settlers were slaughtering indigenous people in this country and then enslaving um, uh, African Americans. Um, so I think the 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 uh, wait a second racism goes on um, uh, as we know now and and I think that it's been been a A flare up not of racism itself, but there's a flare up of awareness of racism and a flare up of the videotaped, again, technology plays a role, of people seeing, oh my God, this shouldn't be happening, this shouldn't be happening. Of course, it never should have been happening. And of course, if you were in a black community, and and you would know that, and you would know what's been happening, and you would know the difference it is for somebody who is uh, of color to walk down the street at night, just the way the difference is for a woman uh, compared to me as a, as a white male walking through the streets at night in a town or even a city, I don't, I'm not necessarily aware of intense danger or fear of, oh my God. But every woman I know who I've ever talked to about this, they live inside a completely different skin and it's totally different. And I think if you're a person of color, you're living inside a completely different situation and the vulnerability factor is huge every single time. So, um, it, and it's such a thing about in our country that, that this comes about, um, by the way, these first three waves, uh, inequality, uh, polarization and racism all had their origins at the very beginning. Uh, and they're all intertwined, uh, because, uh, you know, the inequality of, uh, of, of uh, being a black American or African American uh, versus being a white American with property was massive and, and has remained in many ways massive, but, but, but with some changes over time and with some improvements over time. And so um, uh, here's another wave. So we're all living within that wave too. And it has really become a flared up part of the dialogue, which I think is a really good thing. But it's uh, painful for some people to see, and um, the next two waves are the Trump, Trumpism wave, I and mean, we've got racism, uh, and then there's uh, and inequality and polarization. But then I think there is a, a special added ingredient in the whole Trumpism wave and in the pandemic wave. So these two things, which are both more recent add-ons, kind of folded into this national uh, stew of vulnerability factors in the context of our country. Um, now you have to add in um, these two. So I think that, you know, and, and with Trump, it isn't just Trump, of course, as everybody knows and everybody talks about on television, reads reads or writes about, you know, it's really Trump and the, and the people who have supported uh, Trump and made as many people will put it a deal with the devil, The people that really had to hold their nose around Trump's personal style, his impulsivity, his narcissistic features, his lying, his treatment of women, all of these things that would normally have disqualified somebody, um, at least uh, you would think, though not necessarily over our history. I mean, um, there were factors that were stronger than those that have led him to have 40 million followers that have stuck by him and a Republican Senate that has stuck by him even while holding their nose for many of them and, um, and, and yet are, you know, they're part of, they're part of the picture. So, um, I think that the, the, the alignment with Trump and the add to add on to our national context of vulnerability factors is the, uh, the way in which his behaviors, his decisions, his, um, way of operating, um, keep stoking the waves of inequality and polarization and racism. Uh, I mean, to start your political career by claiming that the first Black president in American history wasn't American, and pushing that and pushing that and pushing that, and, and that brought out who his supporters were. And then your first decisions as a president being to slam people coming across the border from Mexico and people of dark skin and people of Mexican heritage and people from certain countries that are basically people of color. It's like, um, yes, this man aligned himself with white supremacy and racism, and it brought people out supporting that. And, uh, And at the same time, he aligned himself with the haves, even though he claimed to be aligning himself with have nots. And he aligns himself with polarization every single day. So he really, um, I don't know if it's fair to say he stirred the pot or he just put a burner under it and it became a hotter stew. But I think that three and a half years of this and all of those factors have heated up in such a way as maybe to render some of them to better solutions if, or not. Um, so polariz- polarization has gone beyond imagination the extent of inequality has come to almost a breaking point. Racism has ascended and come into more stark view, bringing with it um, the the punitive and deadly role of policing that was there since police would chase slaves that left plantations and would support the the landowners, the plantation owners. And all of this has rendered a larger and larger percentage of people in our country And not just African-American people, but people of color in general, and people who are close to people of color or who are supportive, have made people more and more vulnerable to these powerful factors. Um, It's possible that the Republican Senate and other such people could never have imagined the degree to which uh, Trump would bring narcissistic features that they didn't understand, I think, or maybe they did into the presidency uh, and the dishonesty and the antisocial features, but um, but they've stuck with him even so um, until it's apparently cracking a little bit. And then there's this last wave, the COVID pandemic. Obviously, the whole country is now more vulnerable. And it's sort of, if these other things weren't going on, this would be all, all there. This would be the big uh, shared uh, vulnerable factor in the environment would would be this pandemic, the lockdowns, the restrictions, um, and and the uh, the fear about that, and the disinformation about that, and the battle between science and non-science about that, and the uh, and so even that uh, people being more isolated, people having, I mean, I'm sure many of you, if you're therapists and and, and mental health professionals. Uh, and, or if you're not, you probably are well aware, if not in the situation yourself, that certain life trajectories have just been cut to the quick overnight. Um, I know many uh, who's, uh, who haven't gotten sick with the virus, but who have lost their tra- trajectory of their lives, lost a love of their life, uh, lost a plan of their life that was going to change everything, uh, lost their money, lost their jobs. Um, And so it's the pandemic even take away the way it's been managed by our government, just the, even the most effective lockdown done in a unified way. Oh God. I mean, still all of these things would have happened um, and have happened uh, in some other countries, some less than others. Um, But, but when you mix together the pandemic and put it in as a factor on top of Trumpism, uh, And the mismanagement that comes from his style and his beliefs and his self-centeredness and lack of empathy, it's just like, oh my God, now you've got a dual terrible mix. And then you add that to racism and inequality with racism so that racism has also resulted in African-American people uh, being more likely to be the have-nots and the have-nots are getting sicker. And they're having more trouble because they're actually the ones out in society doing things. They're working or they don't have quarters to be in that are as safe, or they have lifestyles that bring them just much more, they depend on each other in in families and churches and and communities. And so all kinds of things, but including the inequality of it, this came out in news today, was a, a study about this, and one will come out after another, but it's the inequality uh, people at the low end of the, of the uh, spectrum uh, that have-nots are the, are the ones other than the elderly in nursing homes that are most uh, victim, victimized by this pandemic. So all of these vulnerability factors, all of these waves are converging uh, for certain people and, um, and affecting in, in different ways all of us. So it's very dark times for many people and huge numbers of people. And if you follow the news, you suffer every day. Uh, if you choose not to follow the news, you just don't know as much what's going on. But then when you find out, you say, oh, my God. I mean, because uh, decisions being made as we speak uh, are still look crazy. Like, what happened? Um, what happened? And uh, some of it is, is uh, certainly a lot of it is a leadership Uh, of the country. Um, So now I want to talk about using some central DBT principles. And there's these three big ones I mentioned at the beginning. I do think, and this is partly based on just my own personal experience. So I can draw from my experience, even if I can't draw from my experience to speak about every one of these waves equally. Um, The first one is, uh, is, uh, as Thich Nhat Hanh described it in his brilliant little book early in his career, The Miracle of Mindfulness. It is a miracle, and it can transform you uh, into somebody who is uh, in the stew of all of these factors, in the muck of the daily news, uh, in the confusion of our country, uh, in the current dialogue about what we should be doing, Um, about lots of factors uh, and how it affects everybody and who we should be helping and stuff. I mean, all of these things that are just an overload of cognitive density and just a heartfelt compassion density, there's just so much going on that it's easy to lose our minds. Uh, So when I say mindlessness and using mindfulness amidst mindlessness, by mindlessness, I don't mean people being dumb. I mean people really um, being in... uh, Environmental circumstances in which whatever capacity they have to is to stay clear, to stay organized, to stay structured, to stay on track, to stay compassionate to other people, uh, as well as to themselves, all of this is impaired right now significantly. And so, you know, there's uh, not for every single person or in every or for everyone in the same way, but all, everybody is has to some degree or other at least for part of this time, and this includes me, lost their minds. Can't tell you how many emails it seems like I've lost during this period. I'm not sure I've gotten any more than usual, but the new circumstances and the dis- level of distraction has, has been hard uh, to keep up on everything. Um, and it's a daily challenge. So, With people having lost their minds, I mean those things. I mean people who feel overtaken by life right now, overtaken by isolation. Uh, People who wake up on the wrong side of the bed every day and feel out of sync with life, which I'm hearing some, and my guess is it's really rampant that people feel that so much is swirling around. There's so much confusion. Every conversation I have with friends includes discussion about these kind of things and And people having gotten even in one the same day different information about what is going on in the world and what to be doing in the world. Um, And some of it very important. Um, And so, you know, people don't know, should we be wearing a mask? Uh, or not wearing a mask? Should we be socially distancing? And what really does that mean? And should we be doing that if we're walking on a bike path or, or in, a, in the woods uh, and, you, and you come across other people? Should we be going to restaurants and sitting outside because now that it's possible, or is that a bad idea? Um, and um, is, are the numbers supposedly going back up in our country right now or staying up because of testing? increased testing, or is it because actually there are more people who are getting the virus and and we're sick? And it turns out that's a very important question, and it keeps being answered in different ways every single day. So um, it's, it's really <laughs> really challenging. I think people are, are losing motivation. I think people have lower mental energy. It's harder to get oneself to do exercise, to get oneself to do um, to do one's work, uh, or to stay focused on it. Um, you know, doing Zoom therapy all day or Zoom training or Zoom meetings. It's good that we have Zoom in this respect that can keep doing some things like this and keep making some contributions. But, oh my God, I don't know about you. And I know it's different for different people, but Zoom can be so tiring. And and it's just one less, one less, it's one increment less human than being able to be together and just in a natural way. So, it's a very hard thing to uh, to adjust to. Um, I find people in my own family are more irritated, more quick to be upset about things. Um, there's people who absolutely say, I will not pay attention to the news. Do not say one thing about the news. It's just going to trigger me. And there's other people who are looking on their phone to see the absolute latest, latest, latest numbers and latest things going on. So it's... Um, uh, and things I said at the beginning of the podcast today about the merger between home life and work life and everything is, is the the level of distractibility that's going on, the sense of claustrophobia at being at home. So one excellent strategy, which we'll get to today, is mindfulness. So how do you how what's the, what's the value of using mindfulness before going into any details or any particular mindfulness exercises? Um, I think what it is, is that when your mind is dispersed, when you're in a mush, when you're in a swirl, when you've got a lot of waves going over you, coming at you from different angles, um, and there are waves that really often matter a great deal, I mean, that one has strong feelings about, that it's an unbelievably reliable and available thing to do, to just bring all that dispersed energy into one point. It's just that's how I think of it sometimes as I sit down to do even a brief mindfulness or if I'm walking around and I just, my head is spinning with different things or I'm feeling bad about getting behind on something these days and blah, blah, blah. And then I'll just, you know, stop if I'm on a walk and I will deliberately just stop and look at a at a tree, or look at a flower bursting through a sidewalk, or I will just look at a at my dogs. I'll sit in the back of my yard in my yard and I'll watch my dogs and just. I, I know, my, like many people, um, my dogs have really made off very well during the pandemic. I mean, they love the fact that their parents are home all the time now, and so I've gotten to know them and I see all these little details of my dogs that are just like. I mean, usually one or, one or both of them are here when I'm talking on Zoom and stuff and they just aren't right now because, why? Because my wife's off Zoom now because it's late in the day for us so they're they're downstairs somewhere. And so, but I, I love these little things. I mean, and, and usually I just thought they were nice and fun to have. So to be mindful of my dogs and whether they have a tick in their fur and whether they're uncomfortable because of the way they're scratching is itself a mindfulness practice. It's what I call Pac-Man mindfulness, and I talked about it in a different podcast about mindfulness. Is Pac-Man mindfulness to me is that kind of mindfulness that mirrors what happened on the Pac-Man video game, where you know you have little Pac-Man going along and he's eating. He's eating these things that give him more energy, and I think when you go around during the day and you're distracted and you're frazzled and you're out of sync. And then you just decide, you know what? I'm just going to stand still. I'm going to sit still. I'm going to whatever. I'm going to lie still. Or I'm just going to look around and I'm just going to notice something. Totally notice it for 20 seconds, for 30 seconds. If long time, a minute. I mean, and then if you do that several times over the course of a few hours, it grounds you. It sort of like pulls you back down, pulls you back down into the here and into the now and out of judgment land, and out of impulsivity, and out of craziness, into, yeah, I wonder if my dog has a tick, or yeah, I'm just noticing that my breath is a little shallow right now. I must be a little anxious, just starting to notice my breath. Um, And then you can do practices that are deliberate that many of you know, and I'm not going to contribute any amazing new pandemic antidote mindfulness, because I think it's basically... This value, one type of value, is just consolidating your mind, which goes like this all the time, gets dispersed and gets pulled in different directions and different emotions, etc. And it's just like, okay, now my mind is focused on the breath. Now it's focused on how my body feels in the chair. Now it's focused on looking out the window and seeing what's happening and just being aware of it. And every time we do those things, we are cultivating a very valuable addition to our mental anatomy, you might say, I've never thought of it exactly that way. Though yesterday I was talking to my skills group, I have a Zoom skills group, and talking about mindfulness this way, that by practicing observing, and by practicing and describing, just noticing, just noticing, and then just labeling, noticing, labeling, these two things, like basic thing, they gradually grow, at the edge of your inner world and at the inner edge of your outer world, right at the boundary between your inner and outer spaces, you grow this little functional capacity to look outward or to look through the five senses or to look inward into the mind or into the sensory system or into the perceptual system and you can, or into the cognitive system. And so you you find a perch And you build a perch and the only way you build it is by practicing mindfulness and it doesn't have to be big meditation. But if you just do a lot of little mindfulness, or if you do longer, longer meditations, you build this capacity to keep looking outside at something, focus, attention, settle your mind, settle down, settle down, look inwardly, see your thoughts racing and sort them out. Say, gee, I'm having a lot of these kind of racing thoughts that already is one step better than just having the racing thoughts. You now are doing two things. You're having the racing thoughts and you're noticing you have the racing thoughts. And the noticer, the observer, the describer is that little extra homunculum, that little extra capacity you have sitting at the boundary of inner and outer, adding to your mental capacities to see what's real, to keep track of facts, to describe things rather than to just jump into conclusions and assumptions and judgments and interpretations. It's actually to see what is going on at the simplest level. And then if you can do that, you move yourself closer to what Stevie T calls wise mind. If you use observing and describing and occasionally use participating by being all in with an experience, you increase the capacity to get closer to a kind of a wiser voice within yourself and a wiser decision maker within yourself. So then when you bring your mind next to the question of, should I wear a mask or not wear a mask when I go over to these people to visit in their backyard? Should I go into that store or not? Should I go into that restaurant or not? Should I open my mail or wait, let it wait two days? Should I touch my dog after my dog has been pet by somebody who I don't know? It's like all these things are questions that come up constantly about the pandemic, not to mention the very loaded questions that come up about racism and that come up about police and come up about Donald Trump and come up about inequality. But the capacity to settle yourself down, to have that ability, to build that ability by repeated little practice of mindfulness. And when I talk next week... I'll, I'll start out by going into a bunch of examples of the kind of things I like to use and that I recommend other people use to, to get that kind of collected, embodied, centered, here and now space that you can then direct to whatever questions are pressing in your life right now about all these things. Gee, should I become an activist about this thing I've been thinking about? Or should I hold back? Should I give money? Should I jump in? Should I stand on the street corner and hold a sign? These are complicated questions. And sort of if you want to get to your wise mind, it's really hard to get there under the pandemic with racism, inequality, Trumpism, and uh, uh, and the pandemic. So I'm going to stop there. Um, and... Uh, I thought I would get more into what some of the strategies are this time, but you know, what the heck Um, I got, as far as I got, that's sort of radical acceptance. That's, that's as much as I could do. would have liked to take you guys further with this, but it took a long time to spell out my background thoughts about this. And I hope somewhere along the way it was useful to somebody and um, in sorting things out. And I'll continue um, next Thursday um, at the same time to try to, spell these out and then get into radical acceptance and into the, the role and value and ways to do validation during this really, really complicated social context. Um, so be well, everybody, be safe, Just the, the words of the day uh, for a while now. And um, yeah, take good care of yourselves. And, and if anybody wants to write me through my uh, website or email, like just any feedback or any questions to address uh, about this or just your add on to this, uh, you know, it helped me think about stuff and maybe I could bring it to other people's attention. So be well, goodbye. See you next week. If you come. Thank you. You're welcome. You're welcome.